0: All right, hey, um, we're in the book of Revelation, and I want to get right to this because this is the reason at this point why we've gathered together here this morning. We're going to look down chapter 4, we're going to look together at two verses, ch- uh, verse number 10 and verse 11 here in this passage and let me make sure that I'm turned on and everything needs to be the way that it is on the microphone, and it looks like it is. In just a minute, we'll look at this verse. Before we do, though, um, hey, are you anticipating, are you looking forward to all of the uh, political ads that you're going to see over the next nine months or six months or whatever it is? There's not enough time, is there? Um, I, I feel like Probably over this last three and a half years, we have not gotten the break that we usually get from the political ads. It just seems like it's heaped one on top of the other. And part of that is because of everything that has happened in our nation with Corona and, uh, with, with ISIS and just different things that are going on. But I loathe. I loathe the time of every four years when you can't look at a billboard, you can't turn on the television and see a commercial um, on the radio. Everywhere is just political ad, political ad, political ad. And all of the posturing, you know what I mean by that? The posturing that goes on in politics of one person trying to present themselves in a certain way and the other person trying to present themselves in a certain way. And how much, how much importance there is to the different people who are running for different um, offices and presenting themselves in a certain way, and they invite the help of other people to help present themselves in a certain way. When I was in high school, I went to hear the vice president of the United States speak. Now, I'll date myself a little bit here, but at that time, the vice president was Dan Quayle. And uh, Mr. Quayle was coming to speak to in a small junior college in the city where I was living at the time. And uh, when he came to speak, I wanted to go hear him because I liked him so I wanted to go hear him speak. So I went early to this venue. It was a gymnasium that they had set up with a makeshift platform up at one end, and then they had the bleachers out for people to sit, and I think, if I remember correctly, it was a long time ago, but there were seats out, and then there was standing room where people could stand, and we, we were all there to hear Mr. Quayle, the Vice President of the United States, speak. Well, we got in there an hour ahead of time, and for the half an hour leading up to when he was supposed to speak, there was a band up on the platform, and they were playing music, and then different local politicians would come, and they would do their stump speaking, trying to get people excited to vote for them, and then it finally got time to where we thought it was time for Mr. Quayle to speak. Now, he was not, to our knowledge, he wasn't even in the building, at least we hadn't spotted him yet, and off the platform, there was a catwalk that went over to a door that opened on the side of the gymnasium. So it got time for where we thought he was going to speak, and this door over on the side opens up, and in walks a gentleman. um, Again, if I remember correctly, he was wearing a dark suit, and he comes up to the lectern, and he looks out at all the people, and he says something along these lines. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you the Vice President of the United States, Mr. Dan Crail, and the band strikes up and opens up the door on the side, and in walks the vice president. Well, when he introduced him, everybody in the gymnasium stood up and clapped and cheered and yelled and uh, they were chanting. I mean, it was it was an exciting time because the because the vice president was there to speak and he walks out to the lectern and people are standing and cheering and he's waving to people and pointing to people as if he knows them and uh, you know doing one of these numbers because he was a politician after all. And uh, finally, the people quieted down. Well, it struck me sometime later the uh, amount of emphasis that went into the introduction. No, Nobody in the gymnasium, out of the hundreds of us that were there, when they introduced Mr. Quayle and told us about him and then said, ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you Mr. Dan Quayle, nobody in the gymnasium went, oh, that's our vice president. I wondered who it was this year. he's the guy. Nobody did that. We were there in order to hear Mr. Quayle speak. That's why we had come. We knew who he was. We wanted to hear him speak. The introduction was not because we didn't know who he was. It was out of respect for his position. Now, a minute ago, pastor got up and he said, this is Tim Thompson. The reason why he did that is not out of respect for my positions because you don't know who I am. and so he wanted you to know who it was that was getting ready to speak to you. but oftentimes there are introductions given not because people watching or listening don't know who the person is, but because of the position they hold. This happens even um, think sporting events for a second. you ever notice how in every game, and every sporting event, the starting players are already introduced. Are are any of you basketball fans? I'm not a fan of the NBA anymore because 20 years ago it was taken over by thugs and I don't watch it. But when I was growing up, when I was growing up, I enjoyed watching basketball and specifically the team to beat. Now, I told you already I'm from Michigan, so I didn't like this team. But the team to beat was from Chicago, the Bulls. This was in the 80s, and the reason why Chicago was the team to beat was because of one player. Do you know who it was? Yeah. Okay, so the guy who changed the way basketball was played, Michael Jordan, really was a phenomenal player. I'm from Michigan. I don't like him because he's from Chicago, but he was really a really great player. And I never attended a game, but I would watch him on TV on occasion. And when a game was getting ready to be played, um, before the game started, some guy with an amazing voice would get on the microphone and say, ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you your Chicago Bulls? And everyone would clap and cheer. And then they would start introducing the players. The lights would go out and the strobe lights would start going over the crowd. It was the 80s after all. So the strobe lights were going everywhere and the guy would get back on the microphone and when he got to, he would introduce the different players when he got to Jordan, he would say and starting at guard, 6 feet 6 inches tall out of North Carolina, number 23 Michael Joe and you assumed he said done," but you never knew because the crowd erupted Popcorn flying everywhere, Coke flying everywhere, jerseys being waved around heads. Just everybody was really excited. Nobody, 30,000 people sitting in the stands. Nobody went, oh, that's Michael Jordan. I wondered who that guy was. Nobody did that. They introduced him, not because no one knows who he is, but out of respect, for how he could play the game, because of who he was. Okay, now look, in a much more significant way, this morning, not because you don't know who he is, but out of respect for who he is. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present to you your God. In Revelation chapter 4, we have a scene unfolds for us that exhibits the grandeur and greatness that is our God. It's a scene that's going to take place in the future. You may be aware of the fact already that the book of Revelation was written for the purpose of telling us things that will come to pass, and they will. The first three chapters are letters written to different churches. And then from chapter 4 on, we have scenes that unfold from heaven's standpoint, things that take place in heaven, things that take place on earth, and a number of things. And it is true that the book of Revelation contains some things that are difficult to understand what all may be speaking about. You can understand it, but some of them are a little bit difficult. But in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. There's no doubt about what is taking place. Now, if you're not in the habit of allowing your mind to be engaged when you either read or hear the Bible, then friend, this morning is the time to make a turn about that. To allow yourself to see the things as they unfold because it allows everything to to come to life and to have more meaning. Let me set up this scenario for you, if I may. The scene takes place in heaven. It's not yet happened, but it will. In the first part of Revelation 4, I believe what is referred to as the rapture of the church takes place. That is, those who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ are gathered from the earth, and they go to heaven to meet those who have died or fallen asleep in Christ Jesus before when we get to heaven, this is the scene that unfolds. In my mind, the Bible doesn't say this, in my mind, I see a series of steps uh, made of marble or granite or something like that that lead up to a large platform. The Bible does say that there is a throne on the platform and seated on the throne is God Himself. Now, out from the the platform and from the steps, there's a C, S-E-A, of people huge number of people, all those who have trusted Christ as Savior, who are all viewing what is taking place up on this platform and surrounding this throne. Now, typically, in a group of any size, I'm a preacher, I watch people all the time while I'm preaching. In a group of any size, typically, while someone is speaking or an event is taking place, there's elbows being given or whispers or something being said. But in this case, in heaven, none of that is taking place. Every eye, every eye is fastened on what is taking place up on this platform. As we stand out from the platform and look up towards it, and we see the throne, God Himself seated on it. Surrounding the throne are what the Bible refers to as beasts who fly around the throne and declare consistently, constantly, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the earth is full of His glory, and they declare the holiness of God. Also, surrounding the throne, there are 24, the Bible calls them elders. Now, we don't know exactly who these men are. I think that they represent the saved of the earth, but we don't know exactly who they are. But they are obviously men who had lived their lives in service to God because they had crowns on their head that had been given them because of their consistent and faithful service to the Lord. And so these 24 elders are seated on seats around the throne. Now, that's the scene. Let your mind see it. And I'm going to read for us verses 10 and 11. Now, I want you to read along with me. That is just in your mind, in your heart. Read it. But I want you to allow yourself to see it. For some of you, you're going to have to dust off the imagination a little bit because you don't use it often enough. But let your mind see this unfold. Let yourself be caught up in what you think the emotion of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have been waiting for this moment since the day they accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. The anticipation of this moment is huge, and now it is happening. And let your mind see it. Verse 10 and 11, the Bible says this, Revelation 4. The four and twenty elders... Fall down before him that, that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Hey, let me read it again. And this time, don't read it. Watch it. See it. 40 steps, a platform. A throne, beasts, 24 men with crowns on their heads standing around the throne. Then the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Father, help us now in the next several minutes that we have to learn what we can from this passage, to see the things that we need to see, to live our lives based upon a truth that is deeper than where we currently live. May this truth, dear God, be simple enough for the youngest child here to understand it, and may the depth that it has reach the saint who has been saved for more years than I've been alive. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask these things. Amen. This is quite the scene. 24 men, crowns on their head, who fall down and cast their crowns before the Lord, declaring, Thou art worthy. Now, the phrase that caught my attention when I was reading through this passage a number of years ago was the first phrase of verse number 11. Look back at it, would you please? Just after the men have fallen down before the Lord, they cast their crowns before His feet, and then they cry out. They declare, "Thou art worthy, O Lord." Now, the the phrase simply means it fits. It's right. Thou art worthy, O Lord. It's right. It's fitting. This 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 is what makes sense. Your worth demands this, thou art worthy, O Lord, and then they say, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created everything, and for your pleasure they are and were created. In other words, what they're saying is you're God. You're the one who spoke into existence everything that is. You're the one who gave us life. You're the one who provided salvation. You're the one who made the sun, the moon, and the stars. You're God. You created all things, and you did it for your own pleasure, meaning you did it because you wanted to. No, nobody stood with God at the beginning of time and argued with Him about how to make the world, how to create man, how to make animals, what to do as far as light and heat. God did this for His own pleasure because it was His desire to do. Now look, let me just mention this real quickly as an aside. Don't, don't ever let the truth of this pass you up that, um, that you have life because God desired you to. Your existence is because of the good pleasure of God. His love for you extends beyond anything that you can imagine. You're breathing and you're living. And you may be dissatisfied with parts of your life. There may be things about your life you don't like. You may have even come to the place where in your life you've thought to yourself, it is not worth living. But I will tell you that just the fact that God cares enough about you to have created you for life, that ought to let you know the great love and plan of God for your life, that God has something special for you. And that really is the truth. But what grabs my attention from this phrase and from this passage is this. Now, please don't miss this. If your brain is wandering, which I know happens sometimes on Sunday morning, right now is the time to bring it back in. The thing that grabs my attention about about this passage is how... Man-centered, we have become in our thinking about God and about ourselves and about how the relationship works. In other words, here's what I mean. I mean that far too often our thoughts about God extend as far as God's hand of, of blessing toward us. That is, when we think of God, we think of Him as good and as great because of all the good things He's done. Hey, let me ask you a question. Has God done good and great things for us? Isn't He a great gift? gift? I mean, we're talking about God here. We're talking about the one who provided for us salvation, the one who gives us food. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. This is a great God. But do you understand, do you see how very much man-centered that is? Let me me see if I can illustrate it quickly. Um, I'm, I'm a preacher. As a preacher, it is my responsibility to tell to you what God says. In other words, this is my calling. My calling is to come and stand before you and to declare, to say to you, this is what God says. If God says something is bad, I'm supposed to tell you, hey, God says this is bad, don't do it. If God says in his word that something is good and right, I'm supposed to say to you, hey, this is right, this is good, do this. And understand me in context, I don't mean this in a mean, snarky way at all, but I'm supposed to tell you, don't, it's bad, or do, it's good, without regard of how you would take it. Again, I don't mean that in a mean-spirited way, but my responsibility is to God to tell you what He says. Okay, so let me tell you what my tendency is in preparing to preach to people. When I'm studying the Bible, and I see in the Bible where God says, don't or do, and I know I'm supposed to tell these people don't or do that I almost always find myself searching around the passage or else thinking logically about how I can explain to you that God says don't or that God says do and specifically how to, uh, how to encourage you to live in obedience to God so that your life can be as good as it can be. In other words, if I see that God says, don't do something or do do something, then I always find myself trying to explain it this way to people. Hey, God has a plan for your life that is good. And God has blessings that he can heap on your life. Now, if you don't do the things God says not to do, your life is going to be better. And if you'll do the things that God says to do, you cannot improve on what God has for your life. Okay, quick time out. All of that is true. But do you see how us-centered it is? Sometimes as a preacher, I feel like a cheerleader who is holding up a treat in front of people. Now forgive the silliness. But like, do you guys know what hostess Twinkies are? Okay, the seventh food group. Um, so I have this Hostess Twinkie, and I'm saying, hey, do you guys see this? Do you see this? This is the blessing of God. And the blessing of God, oh, it's good. It's good. And if you want the blessing of God, then what you do, listen, no, wait, 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 wait. You can have, wait, you can have it. But if you'll if you will do the things that God says to do, and if you'll stay away from the things that God says to stay away from, do you know what you get? The blessing. Oh, it's good. Nom, 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 nom. I've tasted it before, and it's really, really good. And if you want the blessing of God, then this is what you do. And if you'll do what God says, then this is what you'll get. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. You want the blessing of God, don't you? Don't you? Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Go serve God. Go serve God, and you can have the blessing. All right. Now, again, God does promise to bless those who follow His way. But look, in Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11, the phrase that declares, Thou art worthy, O Lord, kicks all of that into second place. And the point of what is being stated here by these 24 elders is this. Listen, God's worthiness. Please hear this. God's worthiness of your following, of your not doing the things God says don't do or doing the things that God says to do, it's not primarily based upon your receiving benefit or blessing from God. It is primarily based on the fact that God is God. And that never changes. Well, somebody says, but Tim, what difference does it make? If I obey and follow God... Because of the blessings I receive, or if I obey and follow God because he's God, either way, aren't I obeying? What difference does it make? Okay, stay with me. The the difference that it makes is this. If your obedience to God, if your service to God, if the amount of effort that you put into your service to God, if the thought you put into it, is based upon what it is that you receive, then the moment that what God has to offer you as a blessing doesn't match up to what you feel like you could get by going your own way, then the temptation to do what you want to do instead of following God is going to be huge because the blessing is not as good in your mind. Okay, but listen, now please hear this. But if your obedience and following of God is based upon the fact that He is God, well, that never changes. If I am sick, He is worthy. If I am well, He is worthy. If my friends love me, He is worthy. If all men despise me, He is worthy. If people applaud, He is worthy if they all disdain, He is worthy. Regardless of what the response is, regardless of what my life circumstances brings, if I live at the foundational level that declares, Thou art worthy, O oh Lord, because You're God, then it matters not what comes into my life as circumstances. My course is set. Take, for example, the three Hebrew children who were thrown into the fiery furnace. Do you remember the story? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So here's three men who, because they followed God, had the punishment that was brought to them, that they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Do you remember the conversation that happened between them and the king? you got to read it a little more carefully than what we typically do. Here's, a, here's a, uh, I, I think, a Sunday school misunderstanding. When they come before the king, and the king says, is it true you didn't bow down before my God that I set up, the statue I set up? And they said to the king, be it known to you, king. We didn't bow down, and we don't bow down. And you can certainly throw us in the fiery furnace. You can certainly throw us in there, and our God will deliver us. But if not, be it known, we will not bow down before you. Okay, when we hear that, what we think is, the men are saying, hey, we won't serve your God, we, we can't, we won't, we're going to follow what God wants and you can throw us in um, to the fiery furnace and um, God may save us or God may not. If he does, great. If he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. And that's what we think is said. What they're saying is actually this. You can read it a little more carefully. What they're saying is, you can certainly throw us in, and God will save us. But if you don't throw us in, but if not, but if not, it's not referring to God saving. It's referring to whether or not they get thrown in. But if you don't throw us in, just know we can't serve your God. Okay, here's the deal. Their course was set not because of what they could receive. Their course was set because they recognized the truth that we need to have at the very heart, at the very foundation of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, and that is He is worthy. And you know, this is not just a Bible doctrine truth that has no bearing on our life. This is a truth that affects the way we treat our spouse, we treat our children, the way we interact with each other, how I am as a businessman, how I am as a coworker. Look, if if I treat my wife based upon the blessing of God versus how I get to feel, then if, not that this ever happens, mind you, but let's say that Brittany says or does something that pushes my button, that I just, don't, I just don't like. The feeling that I get by letting her know exactly how I feel about that far exceeds any future blessing in my mind that I feel like God would give me for answering the way that I ought to. Do you understand what I mean? So if Brittany says something to me that pushes a button, ha, <laughs> then at that moment, I don't really care about the blessing that could come from God. I would rather just let her know exactly how that made me feel and what's going to be done about it in our household. Okay. But if I respond to my wife in obedience to God's command because God is worthy, then don't you think that's going to adjust my family situation? So the deal is I live my life based upon the fact that He is God. I speak and interact it's not a matter of, well, this isn't that big of a deal. Uh, I don't lose so much by not following God's way. God, The blessing of God is not such a big deal. I can go this way and still be a Christian and still be okay. <laughs> Friends, the point is, He is God. And He's worthy because He's God. And that's the way our life needs to be lived. Okay, so if this morning... I stood up to preach and I said, hey, turn your Bible to Revelation chapter number four. And all of a sudden the back doors open up and in walks an entourage of people. And some man in a dark suit came up and pushed me out of the way and stood up before you and said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special treat for you this morning. I would like to introduce to you the president of the United States of America. Okay, now regardless of what you think of him as a person or his policies, out of respect for the position that he holds, I would stand if I were seated and I would clap because he's the president of the United States of America. Okay. How much more significant then should be our response when someone of no consequence stands before you and says, ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you, God. Now it may not cause us to stand and clap, but don't you think it ought to cause us to bow our hearts and our heads and to declare with 24 elders Thou art worthy, O Lord, because He is. And may our lives' decisions reflect exactly that.